This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Heartlanders and welcome to Season 5, Episode 24 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support and you get a whole lot for it. I know this is a bit dated, but the ending of Game of Thrones makes sense. Think about it. Arya went west, Jon went north, Drogon went east, and the show went south. Okay, joking aside, I've got good news and bad news. Bad news first, right? Well, if you insist, Fear from the Heartland will be on hiatus for a while. No, there's nothing wrong, and yes, everyone involved is okay. And there's good news, remember? You'll still hear plenty of me on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, even on this same very time and day. There's some restructuring going on around here, and we're hoping it all works out for the better. I will miss our little chats in the meantime. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Paul J. McSorley, so I can keep you abreast of the latest dad jokes, audiobooks, which you can find at paulsbooks.net, and other projects I'm involved in. And of course, all five seasons of Fear from the Heartland will always be here for you to revisit. More thoughts from me next week. That said, episode 24 is a damn fine mess with two stories, one each from Alexander Grayson and Xavier Pocaine. Let's get after it. Arthur is an honest man sent on a simple job. Inspect an isolated township and determine whether the townsfolk require any mainland assistance. However, instead of a smooth landing, the ship he's aboard is tossed apart in a storm. 
and the townsfolk are less than appreciative of his presence. What he faces soon after could be the end of everyone if he makes the wrong choice. And now, for your indulgence, Shipwreck City by Alexander Grayson. The seas churn beneath the boat as it lists under the weight of each strike from the ocean. The torrential rainfall coated every inch of its surface in a mucus of thick slime. Arthur watched from behind the captain while he wrestled with the massive wooden wheel. Each turn was a vain attempt to regain control. His short-brimmed hat ran around his head with one hand firmly on top, keeping it on. The rest of his brown jacket coat and pants attire were arid, given the weather. His unkempt beard and haggard eyes were barely visible underneath the large collar he ran around his neck and across his face. A crew member frantically ran into the helm. Captain Thomas, we saw someone in the distance crash into the waves below. We think it might be from another boat nearby. We lost sight of him as... He's lost. Get back to your post. We just need to get ourselves through the storm, the captain barked. A flickering shot of lightning lit up the night sky. Arthur grabbed the wooden handrail at the back of the helm and braced for the monstrous wave he saw crest in the momentary light. Captain Thomas was too busy correcting the ship's course that he failed to notice it. It only took a moment, and the wave smashed the ship in two, as if an axe had cleaved it clean in half. No one aboard was able to react before the water sucked them into an icy tomb. Arthur held on as the water shattered the windows and flooded the room. Abandon ship! Thomas screamed into the radio. His words didn't go anywhere, and the last noise they both heard was static and water pouring in. Life jackets? Arthur yelled over the booming thunderstorm. In here, Thomas replied as he opened a nearby cupboard and they donned a pair of yellow dirty life jackets. Another wave toppled down on the board to finish the job and, with it, the rest of the ship. Arthur and Thomas were swept out and into the frigid waters. All they could do was look on as the last vestiges of the ship bubbled and sank under the waves. Arthur saw the words, Ocean Princess, painted on the front as the bow slowly bubbled into the ocean. She was my prize beauty. I only just paid her off in 67, just two years ago. Never thought I would lose her so fast, Thomas said as he and Arthur worked to tread the perilous waves. All Arthur could think about was his unfortunate luck taking on a job he knew would get him killed and how it was now about to kill him. Do you think anyone else survived? Arthur tried to ask over the noise of the storm and ocean. He was met with only rain and waves as he looked around and realized he was alone. Thomas had either drifted off or been swallowed up. Neither was preferable, but Arthur hoped he at least drifted off so they might both get found. With each wave, Arthur felt his strength starting to wane. His legs and arms weakened under the weight of his thick woolen clothes. Dressing for the harsh wintry climate was a good idea until he was stuck in the ocean. No use trying to undress now. He was stuck and wouldn't last long regardless. Arthur had resigned himself to his fate when lightning filled his vision again. But instead of a giant wave, he saw an island forming the sandy beaches and mountainous horizon. He wasn't far. He just needed to make a swim for it. The irony of being this close to their goal and the ship going down wasn't lost on him. How many men had given up their lives because he paid them an extra few hundred dollars? He almost wanted to laugh at the meaningless of it all. With each stroke of his arms, the island grew closer. The waves seemingly pushed him closer now. 
The sandy beach he saw came further into view as the lightning barraged the sky. Its coarse grains were mixed with driftwood, seaweed, and bones. Arthur saw a large log being carried onto the shore and grabbed hold. He managed to recoup a small amount of breath as his arms hung over the waterlogged tree. He felt the rocks and debris under his feet as he touched down on the shore and clambered up the beach. With a beleaguered sigh, Arthur finally managed to get up the rock face and out of immediate danger. The waves continued to crash into the shore and up over the rocks, which Arthur failed to care about and simply lay there in the stillness of the dead grass. Mate at the shore, I see. A weathered old voice came from a man looming over Arthur. His wasted face and dirty old coat were patched with smaller pieces of cloth. The man would be nearly a hundred years old at Arthur's best guess. How he got out here in this storm was another question altogether. Well, not much of a talker, is ya? He asked. Arthur slowly picked himself off the ground and went to shake the man's hand. Name's Arthur Logan, he said. The man raised two arms and his old coat slid down to reveal two nubs. Not much for the old handshake no more, but name's Thomas all the same. Let's get you out of this weather, he said as he turned around to leave through the densely packed woodlands behind him. Not a single tree showed any signs of life. Although it was night and their path was lit only by a lantern, Arthur couldn't see a single shred of color among the foliage. Thomas had picked up a lantern near the tree line and held it aloft with a rope which fastened around what was left of his arm perfectly. We don't get many visitors here anymore, what with all the weather and all. Where did you say you was from again? Thomas asked. His voice was raspy, but the dense trees held back most of the noise from the storm. I'm from the mainland. I was sent over to help determine the status of the island, Arthur replied. Thomas stopped in his tracks and turned around slightly. He raised the lantern to his wrinkled hairy face. The mainland, hey? Haven't been there in, well, I can't quite remember. You folk don't come here anymore. So, determining if we're still alive then. Something like that? Yes. Do you know if there's a working radio? I would like to get a hold of someone back in port to let them know about what happened to the ship. There was no response as Thomas continued to trek through the brush. The gentle swaying of his lantern occasionally flicked off tiny sparks that darted into the air and gently faded. After a while of quiet walking, they emerged from the dirt track into a clearing on the far side of a town. The buildings were all covered in the same damp mucus as the boat, and most had cobbled together roofing. The brickwork left a lot to be desired, and lights from inside shone out of the various holes scattered around each one. That there's my place. You can get dry and We'll see about putting you up for the night. Thomas pointed his lantern arm toward a larger building on the far side of town, one of the few two-story buildings that stood far above the others. With each squelching footstep, Arthur could feel the peering eyes of denizens watching through windows and crevices. There was no way for him to see into any of the buildings too well, nor did he want to. The creaking of doors closing or opening resonated around him. The skittering of hurried feet dashed around him in the shadows. Arthur did his best to keep his eyes forward, but couldn't help but feel an overwhelming sense of foreboding coming from every home. Not very welcoming, are they? Arthur said sarcastically, trying to ease the tension. We ain't seen a mainlander since the last one of you ended up on our shore. Most folk don't take too well to what they don't understand, and you is something they can't rightly understand, Thomas responded. Will I be able to meet some of them in the morning? I will need to question folks and see how the situation of the township is, Arthur asked, 
just as they arrived at Thomas's house. Once they had gotten closer, Arthur could make out Thomas's house more clearly. His was in much better shape than all the rest. A cleaner house with no holes and windows you could properly see through. The roof was made up of what appeared to be ship pieces, as was the front door. You must have a lot of ships that come ashore if you can build your house out of their parts, Arthur said while being let in. Only a few, but they come back around every so often, Thomas responded, shutting the door behind them. The shadowy room was lit only by a large fireplace off to the far side near a brick wall. An oddly shaped series of bony appendages ran the course of the mantle and up the walls around an eerily dark, storm-filled coastline painting. Arthur walked around the room as Thomas sat the lantern down near a high-backed chair beside the fire. The rest of the walls were covered in old clippings of newspapers, detailing shipwrecks and fishing halls of monstrous proportions. So, your main source of food on the island is from your fishing expeditions? Arthur asked. He joined Thomas, who was now leaning back into the high-backed chair. There was a smaller stool where Arthur was able to sit. Although uncomfortable, he felt the heat of the fire begin to work at drying his damp clothes. Thomas sat silently for a few moments, looking deep into the fire. The crackle of its blaze mixed in with the patter of raindrops on the metal roofing. The fishing halls are plentiful, but we're not without our dry seasons. It took me a long time to figure out that the years we don't get any shipwrecks are the years we don't bring in many good hauls. With your timely arrival, we should be having a healthy surplus this year. Do you think there's any correlation between the events? Arthur asked. He had removed his coat and laid it in front of the fire to help expedite drying. Thomas leaned forward. What I think is there were a lot of good men that drowned tonight, so everyone is going to be eating well. Now, why don't you save the rest of the questioning for tomorrow? Storm is letting up, and I've got to check on some things. You'll find a spare room upstairs. I'll be seeing you in the morning. Without another word, Thomas headed back out and let the door swing shut behind him. Arthur sat in silence beside the fire, sizzling its last embers. He looked up at the painting, now a darkened, star-filled coastline. Paying it no heed, Arthur went upstairs to find a poorly kept threadbare bed and dirty curtains rustling from the slight breeze creaking through the wooden window. He made do with the poor excuse for a blanket and pillow on the bed. Arthur awoke to the familiar sounds of cars driving and people chattering outside the window. After a cumbersome effort of pulling himself off the mattress, he moved to pull back the curtains and reveal the town in the daylight. The town was, to its best efforts, chugging along but the streets had no form of paving, and the tire-marked pathways were all lined with water. The few cars that traveled down them were all older tractors pulling haphazardly made carts. He noticed that, once again, the carts were also all made from ship parts. Arthur wondered how many ships got lost around here and how these people could pull so many pieces up to reuse for themselves. A faint tap came from behind him at the bedroom door. Mr. Logan, the township is ready for your inspecting, Thomas said as he pushed open the door. Not sure you'll get many answers from folks, but you're welcome to try. Very kind of you, Thomas. Would you mind pointing me in the direction of the town hall? I can start there with the mayor, and they should be able to answer most of my queries. Arthur asked, picking up his coat and jacket from the chair. Right across town. It's underneath the old lighthouse. They fixed her up to be the city hall when the ships started showing up, Thomas replied. Arthur looked at him confused. They don't use the lighthouse? You didn't think that could be why there are so many shipwrecks? Not my place to wonder. 
Thomas said before returning downstairs. Arthur wasted no more time heading out into the muddy walkways running between the ramshackle buildings. A gray clouded sky hung over the town like a heavy blanket. The few people he saw were all covered in dark green or gray raincoats. No visible face or body parts were showing anywhere. A few walked normally, but most had some form of limp or ailment. The tractors that sputtered past him barely slowed to make their way down the lanes, and a few almost ran off into the walls. Excuse me, I don't seem to quite know the direction of the lighthouse. Arthur tried to stop a passerby, but his hand slid down their slick, filthy raincoat. The person jumped at his words and pulled away from him immediately. Don't speak to us, the person said before hurriedly moving away from him. The scene had drawn the attention of a few others who had now stopped and looked on at Arthur. However, he wasn't sure if they were looking at him since he couldn't see their faces. Does anyone know where the lighthouse is? He called out, hoping someone might point him in the general direction. One person moved their arm upward and gestured toward the farthest side of town. Arthur got up on a nearby crate and noticed the half-collapsed roof of the lighthouse. Thank you, he went to say, but the person was already gone. After several minutes of hurried walking, Arthur reached a clearing near the lighthouse. The half-smashed tower had been built around to create an outer shell of a house. Larger pieces of the old building were scattered about, and the bottom half was left exposed and open. At least as far as Arthur could see. There were a few gaps from where there used to be windows he could see through. Arthur tapped on the front metal door, his hand creating an echoing thud each time. What? A guttural voice came from the other side. My name is Arthur Logan. I'm here to inspect the island. Mainland authorities sent me, Arthur responded. Fine, come on in then, the person responded. It took significant force to push the door back as it scraped along the flooring. Deep marks let Arthur know it had been like this for quite some time. Don't worry about the door. What do you want? Arthur turned to get a look at the person who let him in. It was barely a person, if you could consider them one. Their skin sagged over their body as if it had been stretched repeatedly. Wrinkles over wrinkles and a sheen to them that appeared to match the rest of the slime coating the building. I have, um, come to check on the state of, well, Arthur stammered his words, the state of what? The person responded. Arthur couldn't be sure of whether they were male or female. Their facial features and rotund body hid any defining characteristics. You see, sir, he said, raising his voice slightly at the end, hoping they would correct him if wrong. What? Spit it out. I ain't got all day. I've been sent to check on the status of the township and verify whether or not you require assistance. I'm also here to ascertain the well-being of the citizens, Arthur said. The person squinted their eyes slightly and turned to sit back at a poorly shaped and built desk. It gave Arthur a moment to quickly scan the room and notice similar clippings of newspapers he saw at Thomas's. We don't appreciate your lot deciding when to check on us. And we certainly don't appreciate whether you think you can determine what's best for us. We've made it this far without help and will continue to do so. They said as they slammed their fists down on the desk. You think you can just keep coming back here and demanding to speak to us? Their voice grew deeper and more challenging to understand. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend or intrude. I was simply sent here to do a job. I've only the well-being of your township at heart, Arthur pleaded. Lies every time. I'm sick of doing this. Just get out, they yelled and pointed back towards the door, throwing a stack of papers off the table as they did. Arthur backed up towards the door but caught a quick glimpse as one of the papers landed near his feet. All he could make out was the title that read, Monday. 3rd of November, 1884, first recorded morning sunset.
I won't trouble you again. I'm very sorry for taking up your time. Arthur continued on his way out of the door. He hurried off between some buildings to try and catch his breath, but as he went down each alleyway, more townsfolk blocked his path. Their shadowed faces pierced his being as Arthur felt every set of eyes in town was on him. We don't want you here, one person said as they pushed Arthur to the ground. The dirt and mud rubbed up on his clothes and hands as he scrambled back to his feet. You're not welcome, never have been, another one said. Arthur made his best attempt to scurry through a gap of people. His only saving grace was their physical ailments, stopping them from keeping up. You bring only doom! Arthur heard one shout as he made his way for the tree line. The gnarled limbs scraped along his face and coat, tearing away at his skin and clothes like razors. The rugged hills and thick roots tripped him, but the adrenaline of nearby voices kept Arthur returning to his feet. Rustling continued to follow him as he made his way for salvation. He wasn't sure why, but the town was no longer safe. He could hear their wild screams behind him. They echoed through the trees and into the cliffs above. Arthur finally found his way up a few cliffs to overlook the village and rested behind a few large rocks. His shallow, repeated breaths created a white mist. During the climb, he hadn't noticed how cold it had suddenly gotten in his haste to escape. After waiting to hear the voices and rustling begin to dissipate, Arthur worked up the courage to look over the rocks. He could see the township below and its inhabitants return back to their work, save for the few who now had gathered around the lighthouse building. What little Arthur could see from the safety of the rocks was a few of them lighting torches and taking up arms. They were intent on finding him, and given their violent outbursts, Arthur knew they wouldn't ask him politely to leave. His only choice was to climb further into the mountains. Perhaps he could wait them out a day or two and then attempt to steal one of their fishing vessels to escape on. Arthur made his way up the mountain's craggy, icy stone face. His hands reached for every handhold out of sight and clinging as if it was his last chance. The only solace in the solitary climb was that with each pull upwards, the sound below grew distant. It was impossible to tell how high the mountain went as the top ascended in the clouds and beyond. His best guess was several kilometers. It worms its way inside. Hello? Arthur shouted back at the sudden voice in his ear. He twisted his body violently and nearly sent himself tumbling down the mountain in a mad rush to see who had just spoken. A cascade of rocks hurtled downward and Arthur pushed himself back into the mountainside as best he could. Climb. The voice came again. It spoke to him as if they were standing right next to him. Who's there? Arthur pleaded. Arthur waited for the voice, but only silence hung in the air. His short breaths and aching hands told him to press on. The sun had begun to set, and the light gray dreary clouds gave way to banks of the black storm-filled anger on the horizon. It took all his might to press on, but Arthur managed to scale far enough upward till he found a small cave for shelter. It was dark, cold, and slightly damp, but it was safe. That was all Arthur cared about right now. He moved a few of the larger rocks from the back of the cave to the front, creating a smaller barrier against the coming wind. Night descended upon the island, and the mountain became awash with rain and lightning. Booming and crashing rocked the cave as the storm shook the mountain, threatening to break it. Lee. The same voice whispered in Arthur's ear. Leave me alone, Arthur cried out as he hunkered in the back of the cave. Obey, the voice screamed with such intensity, Arthur felt his eardrums almost burst. Arthur screamed in agony, clutching his ears. He raced towards the edge of the cave in a mad burst of torturous pain before stopping himself at the edge of the rocks. The raging storm poured waterfalls down the rock face. His mind immediately jumped to him, careening off the cliff face toward the jagged boulders below. Climb, the voice commanded. What do you want from me? Arthur yelled out into the storm. There was an eerie silence as all noise ceased. 
The rain continued to fall and the lightning lit up the sky, but Arthur heard nothing. Finally, he saw in the shadows of the lightning four red orbs in the clouds above him. With each lightning bolt, he saw more of the monstrous figure lurking far above in the storm. It said nothing, but Arthur felt the presence of pure malevolence. It was nothing but carnage and wanted only one thing, freedom. You sure did take your sweet time, Thomas said calmly from the cave behind Arthur. Arthur grabbed a nearby rock to stop himself from tumbling backwards in fright at the sudden appearance behind him. But how... you... how did you get up here? He stammered. The stairs? Thomas pointed to a passageway Arthur hadn't noticed in the back of the cave. You reckon you'll make the right choice this time? Or is we gonna have to wait for you to come back round again? I don't understand what choice? Arthur asked. The only choice that really matters. Keep going up or throw yourself into oblivion. Why would I go up? No, wait. Why would I kill myself? I just... I just came here to do a job, Arthur responded. He looked back at the formless creature radiating its hateful gaze from the clouds above. What is that thing? Your destiny, Arthur. It was always your destiny. You just need to accept it. Why can't you ever goddamn accept it, Arthur? Thomas said, the anger in his voice rising as he approached the edge of the cave. His shadowy visage lit up in the storm. Where was once his wrinkled old face stood the man he had witnessed disappear into the ocean only a day early. We've been stuck here for so long. It won't let us be free until you accept it, Thomas said, grabbing Arthur by the collar and throwing him up into the rocks above. Climb, you stubborn idiot. Arthur turned and looked up at the sheer rock face. The red orbs were closer now, and Arthur could almost make out a form, but the beam changed each time he thought he could see it. Massive tentacles shifted into a nearly human-shaped skull, turning into a bulbous mass of writhing flesh. Arthur went to look back at Thomas, but he was gone, as was any sign of lights from the town below. With the amount of water cascading down the mountain, a town couldn't have been left. Arthur knew it must have been swept away in the water flood by now. There was nowhere left to go. He had to climb. One handhold after another, Arthur slowly scaled the mountainside. The rain parted around where he climbed, and the rocks seemed to move into place for him to scale it easier. He could feel it staring at him above, but Arthur didn't look at it. He couldn't look at it. The very idea of its existence made him sick. The mountain shook as he drew closer to the summit. Climb, the voice whispered again in his mind. Arthur tried to drown out the words, but could feel the being clawing at his consciousness. With every second he climbed, he could feel it growing in strength. It wanted nothing more than for him to reach the summit. Arthur could finally see it with the final stroke of lightning. The red eyes came into vision through the thin layer of clouds. It had narrow slits for irises, and the dark, wet, scaly flesh dripped the same mucus he had seen before all over the rocks around him. Slowly, a tendril reached down through the clouds and formed into a human arm. The obscene length was unnatural, with too many elbows twisting it out of shape. Grab, it whispered to Arthur. He felt the excruciating compulsion run through his body, forcing him to reach for the hand. Every fiber of his being was holding him back. Nothing good could come from this. Arthur knew it. Freedom, it said, pushing its way further into his mind. Arthur suddenly saw visions of its reality, water pouring from the skies, and life itself swept away in a torrent of unforgiving death. Nothing left of the world 
but a cold, damp blanket of water. What few people survived were hobbled together on a few small parcels of land, worshipping as the creatures sat above in the gray clouds. It was only then that Arthur knew the answer to the question. He turned quickly, and with all his might, threw himself from the top of the peak. The noise began again. The crashing lightning barely muffled the screams of ungodly anger from above him. Arthur only had a few seconds before he saw the ocean come into view. His last sight was of a ship crashing into the waves, with the words Ocean Princess written on the front. Hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Shipwreck City, by Alexander Grayson. Australian born and raised, Alexander Grayson currently lives in Tasmania. After completing his BA in writing, he spends most of his free time reading or writing about things from beyond our world. Drawing heavy inspiration from Lovecraft and Stephen King, he likes to take his own spin on things with a more modern take. When not doing that, He's watching movies or playing games set with eldritch or gothic undertones. He is currently working on his first major piece of writing and hopes to finish it by the end of the year. Not believing in UFOs or UAPs, because scientifically it can't be proven, is a staunch stance Dr. David Peoples believes in. He, like most scientists, needs proof, something tangible. If he should get the proof, would anyone believe him? And now, for your indulgence, The Impossibility Theorem by Xavier Pocaine. Dr. David Peoples' facial muscles ached from smiling into his webcam during his interview with rising science podcaster Darren Chambers. They had reached the part of the live stream where they were going through the super chats and answering the audience's questions. Okay, Dr. Peoples, Pope Happy Sack 7221 asks, What do you think about Karl Popper's ideas about falsification of theories and protective belts of scientists who blindly defend a hypothesis? Darren asked. Peoples chuckled. Popper has his fanboys, but he was also known to not be a very nice man. Let's talk about falsification first. Yes, the idea of trying to falsify a hypothesis is important to science, but it's not always practical. There was a 2006 study that found that out of 70 papers published in a major scientific journal, only one was found to meet Popper's guidelines. Which leads me to the protective belt. It's not that we're blindly defending a theory that we believe in like religious zealots or even mainstream religious people. Scientists are following data, not belief. What we're defending is a consensus that is based on objectivity. A consensus is built on repeating experiments, and when they turn out the same, it's true and no longer up for debate. Darren looked thoughtful for a few seconds before reading the next Super Chat question. Nora Tenzin asks, Why don't you think the UFO whistleblower is telling the truth? Peoples struggled not to laugh. Space is big. Like, really, really big. The Milky Way galaxy alone is 100,000 light years wide. This means that the probability of aliens visiting Earth is of such a tiny probability that it's indistinguishable from zero. So, you're saying it's impossible for aliens to have crashed in Roswell? Peoples let himself laugh this time. Impossible is a strong term. It's my professional opinion that it's 
improbable. But it's my personal opinion that yes, it is impossible. Darren paused for a moment. That makes sense, but it seems like a lot of wasted space and lonely. Wasted space? Peoples shook his head dismissively. Not really. It's what allows life to exist on our planet and on other planets, including the probability that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe. But it is lonely in that no one is coming to Earth and performing experiments on random lumberjacks or mock dogfighting with our Top Gun pilots. Darren chuckled. We've got another true believer here. XPK 1977 states, simply, Your personal opinion is irrelevant. These things either exist or do not exist, and the same goes for where they come from, wherever that may be, another planet, dimension, or man-made. You cannot prove a negative. Peoples laughed out loud once more. <laughs> I hear that from a lot of people who think too highly of themselves. Yes, they're right that we cannot absolutely disprove that something does not exist. Atheists don't believe in some deity that created everything. But if God were to descend from the heavens and make his presence known in some quantifiable way, then atheists, at least the scientific ones, would have to change their opinion. The problem with proving a negative is that no matter how unlikely something is, it only takes one instance of the impossibility to completely refute the theory that something does not exist or is impossible. Like UFOs? Peoples nodded. Like UFOs. If one landed in front of the White House and little gray men like you see on the X-Files walked out, that would be material proof that biologists, chemists, and physicists could study. But until that happens, rational scientists understand mathematics. Within mathematics are theorems that do predict that some problems are impossible to solve. These theorems are arrived at through decades, if not centuries, of work. And all that time of geniuses working to resolve these problems is proof that the claim is impossible. When a claim is accepted to be impossible, we call that an impossibility theorem. Like extraterrestrials visiting Earth? Darren asked. Peoples nodded. Exactly. The scientific community has no proof, after thousands of years looking up at the stars, that sentient alien life capable of visiting Earth exists. Okay, last super chat comes from Dare Bear, Darren began, and they ask, what would make you believe that UFOs are real? Peoples leaned back in his chair and looked into the webcam. First, I need more data. The military needs to release anything it has that could confirm that UAPs are extraterrestrial in nature. Second, if you're an abductee, bring something back with you. You're not going to go to jail for swiping something from aliens who've abducted you. He chuckled. We can analyze it and perhaps tell if it's made up of exotic materials. All I need to believe, and it's a very low bar, is data and evidence. Dr. Peoples left his bed and breakfast to take a walk and clear his head. While he enjoyed educating the masses on science in general and astrophysics in particular, the pseudoscience left him feeling drained. The silent streets of Herman gave him a feeling of inner peace, especially in November when the chill of the upcoming winter was beginning to nip but wasn't so cold that it was uncomfortable to be outside. It helped that he had grown up here and knew the roads well. He returned every November after the insanity of Oktoberfest ended and the locals could relax until the tourist town's spring wedding season picked up. He walked down East 3rd Street toward Gutenberg Street, enjoying his current vice cigars. Clouds passed over the moon, draping the town in darkness. Peoples closed his eyes and smiled. He loved the darkness. He knew there were no monsters. 
There were only wild animals that once hunted humans, but had now become the hunted and gave people a wide berth. The hairs raised on the back of his neck were the result of obsolete neurological programming. No, the darkness was not to be feared since there was nothing in it. The darkness was just a void, like space. It was in these moments that he allowed himself the briefest whimsy of imagination. He knew that the space between solar systems and galaxies was too vast to allow civilizations on one planet to communicate with another outside their solar system. For better or worse, humanity was floating through space on its own until either our extinction or the sun's death, whichever came first. The quiet roar of Frenet Creek greeted him as he reached the junction of the two streets, but his thoughts were interrupted by the twinkling of a purple light through the trees just north of a rocky access. Without looking, he crossed the street, drawn to the eerie light like a moth to a flame. As he came nearer, he could hear a soft hum. His heart began to race and his skin tingled, his muscles tightening to run. Peoples paused to close his eyes and do one of the breathing exercises he had learned to deal with stage fright. But it didn't work, and his heart only beat harder as if it could flee without his brain's permission. He willed his body to move toward the ethereal light. Breaking past the trees and looking south, he saw it. It was a metallic orb hung in the air that was making the barely perceptible hum. Despite his heart's better judgment, his intellectual curiosity drew him down the rocky bank of the creek. In shoes not meant for wading, he sloshed through eight inches of flowing water and stood transfixed by the sphere. Its color was shifting between hues of gunmetal and purple. The thing looked to be only six feet in diameter. He reached out to touch it, and the tingling sensation intensified until he was surrounded by an oppressive white light and felt as if his body were being torn apart. Dr. Peoples came to, floating in nothingness. In front of him, he could see Frenet Creek, but whenever he turned to his side or looked behind him, he was confronted by white voids. He knew in his heart that he was inside the orb, but his mind refused the absurdity. Perhaps he fell in the creek and struck his head on a rock. He must just be unconscious and in a dream. Movement in the creek drew his attention from the battle between heart and mind. A person was running toward the orb. Except, as it drew near, peoples could see it was no human being. It was one of them. The infamous greys that weaker-minded, less-educated people believed were sneaking into rooms at night and abducting people. When they weren't making crop circles or mutilating cattle, of course. He shook away the possibility that he might be becoming one of those people as the alien reached toward the orb and disappeared only to reappear in front of him. Their gazes met, peoples staring into the creature's large almond eyes. There was no emotion on its face, no anger at the intrusion or even curiosity. He wanted to say something, but he found his lips could not move. He tried to bring his hand to his mouth, but it would not move either. He couldn't move anything. The alien turned its back to him and the view began to change. His mind worked to explain what he was seeing but he could barely comprehend that Frenet Creek was moving before he found himself looking down at the entire town of Herman. A mere moment later, he was staring at half the country and then the earth. There was no biological feedback telling him he was in a moving vehicle, no pull of gravity making him queasy, no audio cue from the vibrating of loose equipment. From his perspective, it was the planet that had moved away from the orb. The Earth, framed against the vastness of space, disappeared and was soon replaced by a swirling light blue that reminded him of faster-than-light travel as depicted in Star Wars or Stargate. It was something he had always mocked and dismissed, privately over fine scotch instead of publicly, as fantasy bullshit covered with a patina of sci-fi pseudo-jargon. But here he was watching time and space move around him. With a cold stare, the alien turned toward him and analyzed him before methodically removing people's clothing. This isn't happening. You're not real. He was relieved to find he could speak again, 
but the alien ignored him. I slipped on a wet rock in Frenet Creek and hit my head. He studied his surroundings. It's all white, except a view screen showing me some random space scene from Star Trek. It's all a dream my subconscious is making up because of the podcast I just appeared on. The alien touched him, its flesh cool as it pressed something cold and metallic against his abdomen. That's just a rock pressing into me. I need to wake up, Peoples told himself as the alien continued to ignore him. Oh God, it's slicing into me. Please, someone find me! He screamed as he felt the metal object slice into his stomach. He could not even move his head to look down as the searing pain took over, but he knew he was being cut open. His gaze could only fall upon his reflection in what he deluded himself into believing was an imagined view screen. The alien was examining his intestines, cutting into them and removing what looked like the polyps his gastronologist had shown him after his last colonoscopy. He smiled. This is just replaying a cancer scare I had five years ago. This is not real, he told himself, and with such conviction that he almost believed it. As the alien placed the polyps in what resembled a floating petri dish, it looked into his eyes for a moment, its expression still emotionless. Or if it betrayed emotion, it was nothing peoples could recognize. It then returned to its work before stepping away. Peoples looked back at his reflection to find his stomach looked normal, lacking even a trace of blood. This is a dream. The alien was looking at a screen that was flashing an orange color with a few hieroglyphic-looking letters centered on it. The orange disappeared and was replaced by a light blue that began populating with many words in what must be the alien's language. It turned, and this time inserted a needle into his arm, drawing a blood sample that was placed in the same floating petri dish. The screen once again began flashing orange with the same few hieroglyphs before turning light blue once more and providing what he imagined was a readout of the test results. The needle remained in his arm, now injecting him with a faintly green liquid. What is that? What are you putting into me? He shrieked. The alien continued ignoring the scientist. There was a hum as an outline of people's body appeared on the screen and the background was once more a flashing orange that eventually turned light blue. A clear flexible hose made out of an exotic material descended from the amorphous ceiling. The alien slipped it onto people's crotch and pressed a button. He felt a strange tingle flow through him, causing him to grow erect. With another press of the button, he ejaculated into the tubing, which left him feeling cheap and violated. He hung his head in shame. I'm just a lab rat to you. You are not a lab rat. It had to be the alien's voice, but the alien had not spoken. Peoples looked up in amazement, realizing that the abductees he and other scientists had long mocked were right about everything. You, you are telepathic, he exclaimed, his eyes wide as saucers as he stared into the alien's eyes. He relaxed as much as he could in his unseen bonds, assuming he would be released soon. You will not be returned to Earth, the disembodied voice answered his unvoiced question. You violated specimen collection protocols. The mind sanitation will not be as effective. Hearing the word specimen applied to him made him shudder. A memory of picking up a date from her work flashed through his mind. She was a biologist who was conducting research on rats. She had just finished inserting IVs into them for an experiment that started the next day. The small animals were doubled over not only in pain, but in confusion over what had just happened to them. In the moment, he hadn't given them a second thought, but now he remembered what happened to them after his ex-girlfriend had finished the experiment. For the first time in his life, he was overcome with empathy. What are you going to do to me? Please, don't kill me. 
you will not be murdered. This time the voice had a tinge of amusement in its tone. We do not take the lives of our specimens like your species does, but we have certain procedures we must follow. You will live the rest of your days in our menagerie, well cared for in a compassionate environment. There are other humans there of all sexes. You will find companionship and maybe love. I want to go home. I'm a human being. The alien merely cocked its head to one side, steadying him. And you are more valuable than a rat or a rabbit or even a beagle? What do your institutions of research do with specimens when the experiment is over? Peoples hung his head in defeat. He knew what the alien was saying, or thinking, to be true. I just want to go home. I wish I could say I'm sorry, his abductor said before turning to pay attention to the vessel's controls. Peoples felt himself slipping in and out of consciousness as the vessel flew smoothly through space. The complete lack of sensation was lulling him in and out of sleep, Meanwhile, the alien ignored him, leaving him feeling like nothing more than cargo. Until the craft jolted. Peoples lifted his head and saw that the alien had tumbled to the nondescript floor. The view of space had turned black, devoid of any light, even the pinprick of a distant star. The same screen that had alternated between orange and blue switched to a solid orange as several other screens flickered to life in the suddenly off-putting color. The Demiurge. The alien's thought materialized in the scientist's mind. Strange. That's the first time I've sensed emotion in you, people said, a vengeful grin spreading across his face. Smells like fear. The alien stood and glared at him. Our fate is a shared one. As his abductor finished its thought, the front of the vessel disintegrated, and he watched in delight as his tormentor was sucked into the void moments before he was to inevitably be. The alien's mouth opened in a silent psychic scream that at once chilled and warmed peoples before it was vaporized. The scientist knew it was impossible, but appeared almost like the blackness shuddered with something akin to delight. He closed his eyes, accepting his fate. He waited to either suffocate or be torn to atoms. When his fate did not come, he opened one eye, then the other. He was adrift in the dark nothingness. A smell that reminded him of his father's welding shop assaulted his nostrils. He shivered, suddenly envious of the alien abductor's mercifully quick death. Do not worry, a voice echoed around him. You will be returned to Earth. Who, what, are you? His mind raced to comprehend what he was being confronted with. All his education and his prestige in human society didn't mean anything in the face of what he was now experiencing. I have been called many names. Plato called me the Demiurge. The Hebrews called me Samir the angel of the blind and ignorant, all because I'm concerned with the material world and not the higher spiritual realm. And so, the god you've long denied judged me in the council of Ale. Peoples stared blankly, ignorant of the being's message. What do you want with me? You have long been my puppet, and now you will be my fool the Demiurge said. What does that even mean? Peoples asked before losing consciousness. Eli Pope yawned, stretched, and scratched his goatee before pouring his lazy Saturday mug of coffee. He looked out on his backyard and did a spit take into the sink. A naked man was in his backyard heading toward the patio. Once there, the man took two pillows from the patio chairs to awkwardly hide his nakedness. Eli's first instinct was to get a weapon to defend himself, but then he noticed who it was. 
he reached for the phone and dialed 911. I think I've found that missing scientist everyone's been talking about, he told the dispatcher before running to fetch something for the men to wear. Darren Chambers studied the face of his most famous and notorious guest to date. Since returning from your disappearance, you've seemingly made a 180 on the possible existence of UAPs. Care to explain? His tone was different from the last time he had Dr. Peoples on his show, having shifted from reverence to the antagonism toward UFO apologists that his audience had come to expect. Peoples took a deep sigh before answering. Science is the pursuit of objective truth, Darren. It is a method and system, but it would be wise to not confuse these two things that are separate from truth. Darren chuckled. <laughs> Last time you were on this very podcast, you talked about how the very process of working to prove a problem, such as the existence of UFOs, could become proof of a claim's impossibility. Dr. Peoples, aren't conclusions reached by the scientific method essentially the same as truth? Yes, I spoke of impossibility theorems, but they're not the same as scientific laws, which are inferred to be true after repeated experiments and observations producing the same result. Peoples picked up a pencil from the cup on his desk and held it in front of his webcam before dropping it. Just now... Did you have any doubts that the pencil would fall? No. We understand that gravity is something that exists, a force governed by universal laws. A theory backed up only by math can be disproved by a single occurrence of the opposite of what it predicts. For example, a verified case of alien abduction disproves the idea that extraterrestrial visitation is impossible. Darren grinned, and it was the grin that both Peoples and Darren's fans knew as his gotcha face. Ah, being abducted by aliens. You're now one of those people. The disdain rolled effortlessly off the podcaster's tongue. Now tell me, did you bring something back? No, I was stripped naked and held in place by unseen bonds. Peoples struggled not to stammer. There wasn't much to steal. Okay, Dr. Peoples, it's been nice having you as a guest, Darren said, ending the session before looking toward the camera. That was Dr. David Peoples, who we had hoped would be a regular on this show until something unfortunate happened to him. We wish him well, and... Hope that he recovers from whatever psychological trauma was inflicted upon him during the time he was missing. Sadly, I can no longer have him on since he's clearly gone off the reality reservation. I must protect the integrity of my show and reputation as a science communicator. I also have too much respect for the man to have him appear again on Freaky Friday, where we let the fringe have their moment. Darren paused to mourn his short-lived favorite guest before continuing. Next up, we have Kenny from West Virginia, who says he has definite proof of Bigfoot. Darren said, and the show went on. I hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, The Impossibility Theorem by Xavier Poe Kane. Still not a best-selling author, Xavier Poe Kane is a former door gunner on the International Space Station. When not making the galaxy safe for democracy, he writes whatever weirdness comes to mind. He currently lives in the woods with his wife, Morticia, in a state of mutual weirdness with their dogs, Chuck Norris and the three-legged Jabba the Hutt. Thanks to the GI Bill, he has an MFA in popular fiction writing and publishing from Emerson College. His latest book, Broken Hearts and Other Horrors, is available now. His next book and first novel, 
A Mother's Torment, will be released September 1st. Both of these works will be narrated by yours truly. You can hook up with Xavier and check out what consumes him at his website, www.xaviercane.com. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-K-A-N-E.com. Or Twitter at XavierCane9 and on Facebook, Xavier Kane. If you enjoyed tonight's story hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.